Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Abby Black wraps up our current mini-series we've been calling My Brother's Keeper, as we take a look at how good relationships can be lived out into the world. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Abby. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, my name's Abby. I'm the Discipleship and Next Gen Director here at South Harbor Church. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been in a series in Genesis where we've been asking the question, am I my brother's keeper? We saw this tension in the story of Cain and Abel and in Noah, and again last week as we looked at the Tower of Babel. Today, we're going to be looking at a question that's asked in a slightly different way to Jesus when he's asked in the New Testament, who is my neighbor? So Jesus, in this parable, is asking, is asking us, who is our neighbor? And is calling us to love one another. So have any of you seen a movie that has a giant plot twist or an ending that you didn't expect? Maybe that's debatably the biggest plot twist of all time. Star Wars, when you find out that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Or maybe it's Frozen, when you find out that Prince Hans is actually the evil villain instead of the charming prince, like you think in a typical Disney movie. It's when you get to the end of the movie, you find out the giant twist, and you're seeing everything through a new lens. It's the time in the story when the person telling the story makes the audience go, wait, what? I had no idea. It's when you get to the end of the movie, you watch the movie all over again, and you're seeing everything in a way that you didn't even see it before because you didn't know. Jesus uses this strategy all of the time in his teachings throughout Scripture. He calls his listening Jewish audience to think differently. His listening audience is following the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus, throughout his teaching, calls them to more, calls them to think differently. We see this in one of his most famous teachings on the parable of the Good Samaritan that we're going to be looking at today. So today we'll be in Luke 10, 25 through 37. In this teaching, Jesus teaches us a lesson about what it means to love even the most difficult people. That's the question, isn't it? It's easy to love those who love us or that are kind to us, or that we agree with, or have similar beliefs. But it's hard to love those who we disagree with, maybe those that mistreat us, or that are different than us. So how do we do it? What if what is at the core of our beliefs oppose somebody else's beliefs? What if what is central to what you believe is in opposition to somebody else's actions? If you love them, are you saying that their actions are okay by loving them? If someone mistreats you and you love them in return, are you saying that what they're doing is okay? So how do we do this? How do we love people that we disagree with that are different than us, that are difficult to love? 
How do we do this as Christians? As Christians, we try to follow what Jesus modeled for us. We try to follow the Bible, what God is calling us into. So we don't just respond in a situation the way we feel like doing it. We respond the way we feel like God is leading us to. So how, as Christians, do we love those people that are difficult to love? How does Jesus do this? How does he tell us to do this? Is there a practice or a strategy for Christians to love the people who are difficult to love or even our enemies? So today we're taking a little bit of a pause on our Genesis series and we are taking a week where we're gonna practice this, a practice of relationship. So today we're gonna be in Luke 10 and we're gonna start in verse 25. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn with me. Verse 25 says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So when I think of an expert in the law, I think of a lawyer, a judge, a police officer. But that's not what they were referring to. They're referencing not the government at the time, but to what governed their lives. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So what they're referencing here, as they're referencing the Bible, a better way for us to frame this would be to think of him as an expert in the Bible, a pastor, a theologian, a seminary professor. So next, it stood up to say, he stood up to test Jesus, making it clear to us, as we are the readers of the text, that despite calling him teacher, he doesn't have a desire to learn from Jesus. He has something a little bit more menacing in mind. Next, he goes on to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if he's an expert in the Bible, as we just talked about, don't you think he would already know this, right? He's asking how he can receive salvation. Of course he would know this. But like many religious leaders at the time, he's suspicious of Jesus and trying to use this as a way to trick Jesus, as a way to trap him. So in pure Jesus fashion, he goes on to ask a question in return. Instead of answering the question, he asks the question back in return. In verse 26, says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The expert here is referencing two Old Testament commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Actually, Jesus says in Matthew 22 that these are our two greatest commandments as Christians, that we are to love God and to love others as ourselves. So verse 28, he goes on to say, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The expert here is referencing the Old Testament commandment to love neighbor as yourself. But what it doesn't tell us in the Old Testament is who exactly is that neighbor that we're bound to love. So there's a debate amongst religious people at the time of Jesus on who is that neighbor? Who are we called to love? So if we look at the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 19.18, the word neighbor is translated to the Hebrew word reha to mean friend or comrade. We see this very same word, though, reha, in the story we looked at last week on the Tower of Babel in Genesis eleven three. In that story, reha is translated to mean everyone or one another. So you see, there's two different camps on this debate. If you were to ask the Sadducees and the Levites, who is my neighbor, 
they would say, well, the Jews are my friends. They're the chosen people of God. Therefore, Jews are my neighbor. If you were to ask the Pharisees, who is my neighbor? They would say, well, all Jews are our neighbor, but so is anyone who's created in the image of God. So this is what the expert's trying to get at. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's hoping that Jesus will agree with the Pharisees so that he can disagree with his theology and teaching. That's what he's trying to do here. In verse 30, it says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Something I found really interesting was that the journey of this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a road known as the Jericho Road. Until about the 15th century, this road was also known as the Bloody Way. It was a road that was particularly infamous during the time of Jesus for the violence that infested it. Josephus, who was a first century historian, said that one of the main reasons for this was that Herod the Great, during this time, had dismissed about 40,000 men who had been working on the temple in Jerusalem who became robbers along this road. So this road was about 17 to 18 miles long. If I have any runners in the room, when you get to that point of your marathon training, you're like, I'm done. I am done running that far. It's a long way to run. It's a long way to walk. It's a long way to ride a donkey. It's a long way. It's a long road. It was only about 18 to 36 inches wide, which means at its widest point, it was only three feet, smaller than our aisles here at the church. So it was a really narrow, long road. It also descended about half a mile in elevation during that time, making it a long, steep, dangerous, narrow, and desolate journey. So to Jesus' listening audience at the time, they would have likely been aware of the danger that this journey posed. So the man who'd been robbed and beaten and left for dead on this road would have been in a very vulnerable position. He would have been in a mountainous desert with no food, no water, and no shelter from the heat. He would have been desperate, isolated, and alone. Have you had a time in your life when you felt desperate, isolated, alone? Maybe you lost a spouse, a parent, a loved one. Desperate, isolated, alone. Maybe you're getting older and you've watched all of your friends get married, now they're starting to have kids and you're just wondering, will that life ever happen for me? Desperate, isolated, alone. Maybe you're out of college and you have all of this debt and you still don't know what you want to do with your life and you just can't seem to find a job. Desperate, isolated, alone. Maybe all of your kids have moved out of the house and you're looking at your spouse like they're a stranger and you're just wondering, how are we going to do this? How are we going to just be married again? Desperate, isolated, alone. I imagine that everyone sitting in this room has had a time in your life when you have felt desperate, isolated, alone, just like the man laying in the road. In verse 31, Jesus goes on to say, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. So remember when I said the roads were narrow, <laughs> like, really narrow, that would mean that at most points, passing by someone on the other side of the road would have been very difficult to do. 
At some points, it would mean actually stepping over the person who was struggling. So we have a priest and a Levite, a priest who is in service to God, and a Levite who is also in service to God as a temple official who passed by this man without stopping to help. Why? Well, maybe they thought, ah, must be robbers again. Let's get past this danger as soon as we can. Or maybe they thought he was already dead. Or maybe they were following what they thought to be their Old Testament obligation to be ritually clean and suitable to serve in the temple. The Old Testament law says that if they were to touch a corpse or anyone who made them unclean, that they would be unclean and unable to serve in the temple. However, something I found really interesting was that this is actually only true until the end of the day. The Old Testament law said that after that day, the next day, they would be considered clean and able to continue their service in the temple. So as we look back at the text, it says that the priest and the Levite were going down the road. As Jerusalem is on a hill, this would mean that they're leaving the temple in Jerusalem to go home to Judea, meaning that they likely already served in the temple that day and would not be at least coming back until the following day. So if they had stopped to help this man, they would not have been unable to serve in the temple. So we have two guys, a priest and a Levite, who passed by this man without helping. Jesus' listening audience at this time is probably thinking, well, Jesus is obviously telling us that's not good. We shouldn't be like them. But what is he calling us to? Who's going to be the hero of the story? Oh, it's going to be a Pharisee. I know it. It's just going to be a Pharisee. Oh, no, He's going to say the Romans. He's going to say we should love even the Romans. It's going to be the hero of the story. That's what he's going to do. But what Jesus does is far more shocking than that. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan who, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So for us, we hear a Samaritan, and we're like, Oh, what a nice guy. What a pal. He helped him out. Must be a great guy. We don't know, but to Jesus' listening audience at the time, they're likely thinking, wait, did he say a Samaritan? He did not say a Samaritan. No way. We cannot love the Samaritans. We can love the Jews. We can even love the Pharisees, maybe the Romans, if you really tell us to, Jesus, but not a Samaritan. Because there's been a feud with the, with the Jews and the Samaritans for many, many years. This goes back all the way to Israel's fall to the Assyrians. During that time, the Assyrians began to intermarry with the Jews, and their children were known as the Samaritans. So, to the Samaritans, they were, to the Jews, the Samaritans were viewed as dogs, as half-breeds. They were not even human, not even created in the image of God. The Samaritans did a lot of things that the Jews thought were despicable. At one point, Samaritans threw human bones into the temple on the day of Passover, making the temple unclean and making it impossible for them to worship and celebrate what they viewed as the most important festival of the year. The Jews would actually go around Samaria to avoid any contact with Samaritans, which means if they're putting that in their Google Maps, they're saying, no tolls, I'll go three hours around this way to take that 50 cents <laughs> to avoid getting that 50 cents toll. They're going the long way around to avoid any contact with Samaritans. If we go back a few verses, actually, in reference to the Samaritans, Jesus' disciples, 
said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? A similar comparison would be the way the Jews thought of Samaritans would be how we think of Al-Qaeda or the communists. The Jews hated Samaritans. And in turn, the Samaritans hated the Jews. When this would have come off of Jesus' lips, the, the crowd would have had a physical reaction to the word Samaritan. That's the one thing all Jews agreed on. All Jews hated Samaritans. So what does he do next? In verse 34, he says, He went to him, bandaged his wounds, and poured oil on and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Starting in verse 33 in the English translation, there are 11 verbs, 11 verbs that describe the way the Samaritan cared for this man. This isn't a love that's a feeling or a sentiment. It's not that the Samaritan got the warm fuzzies from the Jew, Jewish man. It's a call to action. So when the Samaritan was walking by, he didn't think about whether or not he was going to help this man based on his perception, like or dislike, of the Jews. He helped this man simply because he was human. I can think of a time when somebody helped me um, for several years, I worked at Metro Health Hospital, um, right around the corner here. I worked as a hospital social worker, so I was in the emergency department, had a 12-hour shift in the emergency department, and I remember leaving. I was starving. <laughs> I was ready to go home, watch a little Netflix, eat something, and then go to sleep. I was exhausted. So I walked out to my car, and I saw that I had a flat tire. I remember looking at it. I was like, no way. I don't have a flat tire. That's not true. Um, but I did indeed have a flat tire, and I felt defeated. So I called AAA, and they said it would be about three hours before they could send someone out. I was like, oh, awesome. <laughs> Thank you for your help. Um, so I sat, and I waited for a little bit, and for after about 45 minutes, this man came up to my car. He was dressed in a, a full suit and had nice dress shoes on, and he introduced himself, and he said he was one of the doctors that was a department head, and... How, and he asked how he could help. And I remember I was just like, you know, it's okay. Like, AAA will be here in a few hours. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and he insisted that he was there to help. And before I even knew it, he was already, like, locating my tire and getting down on the ground in his nice suit and dress shoes. And I just remember thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> I'm okay. I'll just wait. And before I knew it, he stood up, and he was covered in sweat and grease, and his suit was just dirty. And he said, make sure, that, make sure that you change that as soon as you can and, and drive really slow. And I remember not even knowing how to thank him. I, I drove home and I was thinking, why would that man do that? Like he had to have had a 12-hour shift himself. He had to have been exhausted, hungry, ready to go home and lay down, ready for some quiet after a busy day. And instead, he ruined his suit to help me. Why? because I needed help and because I was human. Have you had a time in your life when somebody has helped you? Maybe it's just been a time when someone's offered you a word of encouragement and you didn't even know how desperately you needed to hear it. Maybe you were stressed out at work and made a pretty big mistake, but when the boss came around to question everyone, someone else said it was their fault. 
Maybe you were having a terrible day and you were just trying to get through the grocery store with your kids in tow and the person at the front lets you go ahead of them in line. Maybe you're on a sports team and you've been trying to master this skill or this move and you just can't seem to get it right and one of your teammates offers to stay behind after practice to help you master it. I think that's what Jesus is telling us here, that we're to go even further, that we're not to love with the way that we feel or with our sentiment, but to love as an action. It says to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the costly kind of love, the kind of love that gets your soup pans dirty, that stops you from going home to have a warm meal or a nap. The self-sacrificial kind of love, that's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us into here. Now, I think in this parable, Jesus is pretty crafty because what he does here is by using the Samaritan as the person in the story who is helping, he is saying who you should love is even those who are most difficult to love, even those that you hate, even your enemies. So what happens next? In verse 36, says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell at the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The expert couldn't even say his name. He said, the one who had mercy on him. Is that what Jesus is trying to tell us here? That we are to love our neighbors, not because we live in close proximity to each other, not because we have similarities, not because we share a similar culture, race, or political views, but we are to love those We are to be neighbors to who we disagree with, who are different than us. Hmm. The relationship between a neighbor that Jesus is referring to has nothing to do with proximity or similarities. We prove ourselves to be neighbors when we love and care for someone. Because when we love someone with self-sacrificial action, there is no limit as to who our neighbor is. Gary Ingrig, in his book on the parables of Jesus, says, love is not a sentimental feeling. Rather, it is a sacrificial action. It means interrupting my schedule, expending my money, risking my reputation, ruining my property, even for a stranger, so that I can do what is best for him. Love is the compassion that feels, the care that involves, and the commitment that endures. Love originates in the giver of love, not the object of love. Love initiates, taking the first step and reaching out to those in need. Love pays the ultimate price, going to extraordinary lengths to help the hurting. That's what it means to be a neighbor, to love simply, to love others simply with our self-sacrificial actions, simply for the sake of others. That's the love that God requires of us. Jesus says, go and do. It's a call to action. Enrig says that the love originates in the giver of love, not in the object of love, which means that those people that are difficult for us to love, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're a friend. It doesn't matter if they're an enemy. It doesn't matter who they are because the love has to begin in us. If there's not love in us, because love is the, love originates in the giver of love, not in the object of love. So the Samaritan didn't look at the person laying on the road and say, well, is it a Samaritan? I guess I'll help him. Is it a Pharisee? 
Uh, I mean, maybe I'll like make sure he's not dead. Is it a Jew? Oh, no, I won't help him. Because the love cannot begin in the object of love. It has to begin in us, the giver of love. Jesus is calling us to action, to love with what we do instead of our feelings, to sacrifice ourselves simply for the sake of others. So remember the question the expert asked, who is my neighbor? So it would have been really easy for Jesus to answer that question and make the Samaritan the one who had been robbed, beaten, and left in the ditch, and the nice Jew the one who came by to help him, saying, oh, we should love everyone, even our enemies. Okay, great, Jesus, got it. But what Jesus does is take this a step further. What he does is make his listening audience identify with the man who was lying in the ditch, the one who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, not as the helper. Forcing the expert and Jesus' listening Jewish audience to identify with that man who had been left for dead in the ditch. I imagine for those who identified with the man laying, laying there in the ditch who was desperate and vulnerable, I imagine that would change the way that they viewed Samaritans. I imagine it would change the way they viewed people as their neighbor, the way they loved others, the way they cared for those around them. Because there was someone who should have hated him. Someone who owed him nothing, who showed him a love that was unimaginable simply because he was human. Jesus is calling us to love. Jesus is calling us to action. He's calling us to relationship, relationship with one another. In Genesis 3, we we talked about the fall of Adam and Eve. But before that fall, God created us as people who were designed for connection, connection with God, connection with each other, and connection with the world around us. We were designed for connection. We were created for relationship. God calls us into relationship. So who is God calling you into relationship with today? Maybe it's a person or a group of people that you've discounted, think less of, Or maybe you can't even say their name. Like the expert at the end of the story, he says, the one who had mercy on him, he couldn't even say Samaritan. He couldn't even say their name. The Samaritans for the Jews and the Jews for Samaritans were difficult to love. Is there someone or a group of people for you today that are difficult to love? Maybe it's someone who used to be a friend, a boss, maybe someone with opposing political views or someone that you view as the enemy. Whoever it may be, I encourage you as you leave today to write down that that person or those people, write them down. Who are the people that are difficult for you to love? Because those are your neighbors. Our practice this week is on relationship. And when we think about the practices of our own lives, we think about what Jesus modeled for us throughout scripture. So where was Jesus' relationships? We see this throughout scripture. We think about it as a triangle. Jesus often went up towards God. He went in towards his community, his disciples, and then out to be good news in the world. As we think about our own lives, we want to, mo- we want to follow Jesus' model for us. 
So how do we have Christ-like rhythms in our own lives? How are we going up towards God? How are we diving deeper into our relationship with God, just seeking after him? How are we having Christ-centered community? And then how are we going out to be good news in the world? How are we loving the people that are even the most difficult to love? So as we think about up in this context, we tend to think of our own mistakes as circumstances and others' mistakes as character. So for example, this morning, if I was running late, it could be that the roads were icy or there was an accident on the freeway. But if they were running late, it's because of who they are. They're just always late. Maybe a good practice for us is to remember that while we were sinners, that God loves us. That he sees it all. He sees the good, the bad, the ugly, the things we hide so deep down, the things we want to not share with the world. He sees it all. And he loves us immensely. So maybe in those moments when it's so difficult to love them, we can think about the worst mistakes that we've made, the worst things that we've done, and the amount of grace that Jesus offered us in that moment. As we think about going in, we think about the people we love, the people who love us the most. They're often the ones who hurt us. Can we practice forgiveness? Can we forgive our spouse, our family member, our loved one for the ways that they've wronged us or the things that they've done that have hurt us? Now, as we go out, how do we love the people that are even the most difficult to love? So I have four practices for us today. So the first is show them respect. Show them respect in the way that you speak to them, in the way you speak about them, in the way you think about them. Offer up the bitterness that you feel in your heart to God because he will take it from you. Wish them shalom, grace, and peace. Our second practice is to try to put yourself in their shoes. Everyone has a series of experiences or circumstances that we don't know or understand. I often think about this as an iceberg. Many of you may have heard this analogy before, but what we see is above the water. We see this just this little piece of ice. And that's people's actions, their attitudes, what they're putting out into the world. That's what we see. But what's going on is so much bigger than that. That's their loss, their trauma, their experiences. That's what shapes and forms them. And we don't know that. So can we try to be understanding? Try to put ourselves in their shoes. Third is to find common ground. I can think there's probably things that we disagree on. Likely many things that we disagree on, right? Um, But there's something that you can find that you agree on a place that you can find common ground. Because when we find common ground, we find a level place to sit, which is where we can have respect, peace, and relationship. Our last practice is to pray for them. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Be in prayer for those that are even the most difficult to love. A genuine prayer for God's goodness, grace, and blessing in their lives. So as you leave today, how is God calling you into relationship? Who are those people that are difficult for you to love? And how are you being called into relationship with them? Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. 
Thank you for the goodness and the grace that you offer us in the moments when we don't deserve it. Thank you for showing us what love, what sacrifice, what that looks like for us all of the time. Lord, I pray as we, as we leave today and as we go out the rest of the week, I pray that you reveal to us the people that you're calling us into relationship with and how you're leading us to love them in the ways that you love us, to love them as yourself, as ourselves. Lord, as we leave, help us to offer grace and goodness and blessing to those around us, to love as an action. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.